We didn't start the fire. It was always burning since the world's been turning. We didn't light it, but we tried to fight it. Hear all about the fight in the danger zone. Amazing stories, incredible music, terrible singing about military history. I'm Paul. Sit back and relax if you can. If you're driving, don't even think of changing stations. You know how dangerous it is to take your hands off the wheel and your eyes off the road. Gonna take it Adolf Hitler said to his generals of the invasion of Russia, We have only to kick in the door and the whole rotten structure will come crashing down. When I first heard that, I thought, what a boastful little dick. But now that I've looked closely at what happened during the Blitzkrieg invasion of France, maybe he wasn't. So let's join Hitler's top punzer general, one of the genius behind the cataclysmic fall of France, Heinz Guderian, as he's circling in behind Moscow to bring about the fall of the Soviet Union, victory in World War II for Germany, pushing his men forward like only a German panzer general of World War II could do. In the previous part of this series, I gave you some of the information about just how lethal the German war machine that invaded Russia was. I thought I'd give you a little more before I moved on. In James S. Coram's book, Wolfram von Richthofen, a biography of perhaps the greatest tactical air commander of World War II, he writes, Before dawn that day, 8th Air Corps, Bomber and Stuka units pounded the Red Army airfields inside the Soviet frontier, in the central sector of the front. The Soviets were taken completely by surprise and paid a high price for their unreadiness. On 22 June, the second air fleet hit 31 Soviet airfields and destroyed an estimated 1,800 Soviet planes in the first wave of attacks, with only two German aircraft reported last. The second wave of attacks later that morning destroyed 700 Soviet planes, with 33 German aircraft last. The initial strikes on the Soviet Air Force were more successful than Richthofen or Kesselring had believed possible. Some Soviet units managed to get airborne and attempt to fly against the German army. Whole wings of unescorted bombers were quickly shot out of the sky by the Luftwaffe's fighters. Within three days, Kesselring could declare the Soviet Air Force essentially broken and order that his forces concentrate on interdiction and close air support missions to support the rapid advance of Army Group Center. Indeed, the Luftwaffe for once had not exaggerated the damage it had inflicted upon an enemy air force. One estimate is that of the 10,000 Soviet aircraft on the Western Frontier area on 22 June, approximately 8,000 had been lost by October. The initial German air superiority campaign was so successful, and the Soviet Air Force had lost so many aircrew, ground personnel, aircraft and infrastructure, that it would not reappear to challenge German air superiority until late 1942. 
After the initial breakthrough battles of June, Bach's army group advanced deep into the Soviet Union in July. Though some Red Army units fought well, most of the force performed clumsily. Much of the Red Army was trapped in pockets and forced to surrender. In the first two weeks of the campaign, the Germans captured 360,000 Soviet soldiers. By 5 August, 774,000 Red Army soldiers had entered the German POW cages. Early in the campaign, Army Group Center, with the 8th Air Corps in support, enveloped a Soviet army at Minsk, capturing over 300,000 Red Army soldiers. In late July, Army Group Center enveloped a Soviet army group at Smolensk, and when the pocket was completely annihilated on 6 August, the Germans could count over 300,000 prisoners and 3,000 Soviet tanks captured or destroyed. Again, von Richthofen's airmen had played a key role in the grand victory. During these grand envelopment operations, von Richthofen's units flew mostly interdiction operations, destroying Soviet columns on the road and preventing the escape of major Soviet forces from the thinly held German pockets. While many thousands of Soviets were able to break out of the pockets and to live to fight again, they usually did so without their tanks, artillery or trucks, which were the Luftwaffe's main target. In addition to destroying Soviet units on the roads, 8th Air Corps paid particular attention to the Soviet rail network, working to paralyze rail movements of troops and supplies in the forward areas. Remembering that the German invasion of Russia began on 22 June 1941, the German chief of staff, Franz Halder, was more than optimistic that the German army had kicked in the Russian door and that the house was literally coming down on them. On 3rd July 1941, just eight days after the campaign began, Franz Halder wrote this in his diary. The enemy situation in the Pripyat marshes remains obscure. We must not overrate the strength of this enemy. On the whole, with no more signs of enemy activity in the Novgorodok pocket, we may fairly be sure that the enemy in the Bialystok sector, who was estimated at 15 to 20 divisions by a captured Russian corps CG, is annihilated except for some negligible remnants. On the front of Army Group North, we may also figure with 12 to 15 divisions completely wiped out. On the front of Army Group South, the enemy's withdrawal and the crumbling of his front certainly cannot be interpreted as a disengaging movement planned by his command. It must be explained by the fact that his troops have been cut up and, for the most part, scattered by our unceasing massive blows. On the whole, then, it may be said even now that the objective to shatter the bulk of the Russian army, this side of the Divina and Dnieper, has been accomplished. I do not doubt the statement of the captured Russian corps CO that east of the Divina and Dnieper we would encounter nothing more than partial forces, not strong enough to hinder realization of German operational plans. It is thus 
probably no overstatement to say that the Russian campaign has been won in the space of two weeks. Of course, this does not yet mean that it is closed. The sheer geographical vastness of the country and the stubbornness of the resistance, which is carried on with all means, will claim our efforts for many weeks to come. James Coram identified, it seems not disputed, the outstanding failures of the German High Command in World War II. He observed, It was a trademark of the German military senior leadership in the war, operational and tactical brilliance combined, with a failure to understand the basic requirements of strategy. The failure, in fact, went much further than just strategy as Williamson Murray and Alan R. Millen wrote in their book, A War to be Won, Fighting the Second World War, where the authors said of the Germans, their almost exclusive focus on the battlefield led German generals to minimize the importance of strategy, to believe naively that logistics would take care of themselves and that intelligence was only of value in the immediate help it would provide combat units. Mungo Melvin, in his excellent biography of Field Marshal Erich von Manstein, simply called Manstein, wrote of that comment of those authors, a harsh but nonetheless largely valid judgment. In Russia, all of these failings were going to be apparent, and they proved fatal. Compare what the German army had done in France with what it had to do in Russia to win. Hostilities with France began on 10 May and ended on 25 June, just 46 days. The front in France was 320 kilometres. The front in Russia began at 3,200 kilometres and widened considerably after that. After nearly five months of almost continuous fighting, on 5 December 1941, the Germans had run out of steam. They'd failed to win their lightning victory, which they had to win, if they were going to have any chance of winning World War II. Although in my view, that time had passed when the Germans failed to destroy the British Army, which had miraculously escaped their clutches at Dunkirk. By October 1941, the Germans had notched up another incredible victory in the twin battle of Vyazma-Bryansk. The last armies standing blocking the way for the Germans to Moscow had been destroyed and 600,000 more prisoners had been taken. The Nazi party newspaper, the Volkiska Biobakta, announced to the world on 10 October 1941, the Eastern Offensive has achieved its aim the annihilation of the enemy. Stalin's armies have been wiped from the face of the earth. But then the Rasputistas arrived. Rasputista is a Russian word meaning a time without roads. And in a vast land with virtually no modern sealed roads, that was very true when the roads turned to mud. Now the Germans first paused because movement in those conditions was impossible, and when the roads again became dry enough to use, the advance was resumed. Guderian was in command of the 2nd Panzer Army, part of Army Group Centre. 
Its job was now to take Moscow. He was advancing on the town of Tula as his forces overstretched themselves, attempting to accomplish what should have been their final encirclement of this campaign, Moscow. But that was beyond their strength. He'd been ordered to take Tula on 10 October, but hadn't been able to. But he kept trying. Its encirclement was almost complete by 22 November, but it was still in Russian hands. General Bolden, in command of the 50th Army, was still hanging on to the city and had a small corridor to the north which remained open until the Soviet winter offensive began, which succeeded in widening the corridor to 30 kilometres. Guderian recorded in his diary of late November, Our most urgent task was now the capture of Tula, until we were in possession of this communications centre and its airfield, we had no hope of continuing to advance either northwards or eastwards. Guderian prepared to take Tula, although he recognised in his memoirs that conditions to achieve that weren't ideal. He wrote, Meanwhile, preparations for the attack by my army were made in such a way that it might be synchronised with the advance that 4th Army had planned for December 2nd. But on December 1st, we learnt that 4th Army would not be ready until December 4th. I should willingly have postponed my attack to wait for theirs, particularly as this would have allowed time for the 296th Infantry Division to arrive. But 24th Panzer Corps did not believe that it could remain any longer in its narrowly constricted assault area. I therefore decided to launch my attack with this corps on December 2nd. On December 2nd, the 3rd and 4th Panzer Divisions and Infantry Regiment Gross Deutschland succeeded in breaking through the most advanced enemy positions. The attack took the Russians by surprise. It was continued on December 3rd in a blizzard. The roads became icy and movement was more difficult than ever. The 4th Panzer Division crossed the Moscow-Tula Railroad and captured six guns. The division finally reached the Tula-Supachov Road. By then, the strength of the troops was exhausted, as was their supply of fuel. The enemy withdrew to the north, and the situation remained critical. On 3rd and 4th December, Guderian met troops of the units intended to attack the Russians. The 43rd Corps, 31st Infantry Division, its 17th Infantry Regiment, and its 3rd Jäger Battalion a unit that Guderian himself had commanded in 1920 to 1922. He reported his meeting with its officers and their views about whether an attack was possible. He wrote this, The officers did not attempt to hide their anxieties, but in answer to my questions whether the troops could attack successfully, they replied that they could, we can knock the enemy out of his positions once more. Whether the other units of 43rd Army Corps were as energetic as my old Kosla Jaegers remained unknown, but in any event, 
the impressions I gained from this battalion decided me to try the attack once again. Guderian continued to attack despite the growing threats from Russian forces that were apparently assembling. He continued his account. On December 5th, 43rd Army Corps attempted to attack but could make no progress beyond certain initial successes by the 31st Infantry Division. The 296th Infantry Division only reached Upa after dark and in a state of exhaustion. I had myself personally visited one of its regiments. On the 29th Motorized Infantry Division's sector, the Russians attacked with tanks to the northeast of Venez. The threat to our flanks and rear in the area north of Tula, together with the fact that 24th Panzer Corps had been almost immobilized by the frost, which was now minus 68 degrees, raised the question of whether it would be right to continue the attack. It could only be so if 4th Army were attacking at the same time and successfully. But unfortunately, this was not the case. Rather, the contrary happened. Cooperation by 4th Army was limited to an action by a fighting patrol, two companies strong, which, after completion of its mission, returned to its previous position. This episode had no effect on the enemy positions opposite 43rd Army Corps. 4th Army had gone over to the defensive. As always, Guderian drove his men hard. David Stahl, in his book Retreat from Moscow, wrote, Colonel General Heinz Guderian and General of Panzer Troops Rudolf Schmidt served as the respective commanders of 2nd Panzer Army and 2nd Army in early December 1941. They were both Panzer commanders who were exponents of mobile warfare in which success depended upon the headstrong and aggressive commanders pushing forward at all costs. This practice, however, often drove the panzer units well beyond their operational limits, and by early December both Guderian's and Schmidt's armies were overextended and extremely vulnerable. That neither man recognised the danger of his actions is illustrated by the fact that Schmidt defied orders and continued the attack even after Bock ordered a complete halt on December 5. Guderian's memoirs of the war provide fascinating and informative reading, but like all autobiographies, they have to be read cautiously. Few people are honest, particularly about their mistakes. A psychiatrist Dr. Abram Twersky said, Human beings need four things, air, food, drink, and someone to blame. Guderian had clearly pushed his forces beyond their ability to deliver victory, even when he himself doubted their ability to overcome the enemy facing them. There was clearly no more puff left in his men, so Guderian's conclusion in the next passage seems to be no more than admitting that he was out of all possible options for further offensive operations. In his memoirs, Guderian says this, on account of the threats to our flanks and rear and of the immobility of our troops due to the abnormal cold, 
I made the decision during the night of the 5th, 6th December to break off this unsupported attack and to withdraw my foremost units into defensive positions along the general line Upper Don Shat Upa. This was the first time during the war that I had had to take a decision of this sort, and none was more difficult. The fact that my chief of staff, Liebenstein, and my corps senior commander, General Freiherr von Geer, were in complete agreement, did not make it any easier for me. He went on to speak about how close the Germans had gotten to the Kremlin in Moscow, ending with the acknowledgement that the Blitzkrieg had now failed. It was not only my second panzer army which was in so grave a situation. In this same night of December 5th to 6th, Hoepner's 4th Panzer Army and Reinhardt's 3rd, which had reached a point only 20 miles north of the Kremlin, were forced to abandon their attacks because they lacked the necessary strength to seize the greater prize that now lay so near. In Ninth Army's sector, the Russians even went over to the offensive on either side of Kalinin. Our attack on Moscow had broken down. All the sacrifices and endurance of our brave troops had been in vain. We had suffered a grievous defeat. Guderian was no exception to the rule that people want someone else to blame for their disaster, as David Stahl continued to reveal in his book. In Guderian's case, he accepted none of the responsibility for his army's exposed position in early December, and in fact credited himself in his memoirs with having saved the situation, because he ordered his panzer army to halt on December 5, hours before Bock's general order. I decided on my own responsibility, Guderian wrote after the war, to break off the attack on the 5th of December. Had I not done so, a catastrophe could not have been avoided. In fact, Guderian was far too late. Guderian noted in his memoirs that by the end of November, since the invasion began on 22 June 1941, a total of 743,000 German soldiers had been killed or wounded, 23% of the average total strength of the German army of 3.5 million men. Now it was the turn for the Russians to attack. The Russians lurched into their badly conducted winter offensive, which continued in one form or another against Army Group Centre, until early in the new year. They paid an enormous price for this offensive, unmindful, more likely uncaring, that throwing away the lives of such vast numbers of their soldiers in this offensive would in fact make the road to Berlin longer rather than shorter. Guderian's 2nd Panzer Army, being elements of Lieutenant General Friedrich Wilhelm von Loper's 10th Motorized Infantry Division, was one of the first German units to be attacked in Stalin's winter offensive. This attack hit on 7 December. The 10th Motorized Division was 90 kilometers east of Tula. It was defending the town of Mikhailov, which it had taken just over a week before on 24th November. 
The Russian attack took place at night. The war diary of the 47th Panzer Corps recorded some units panic developed, sometimes after what was described as only Vic resistance. The men fled to the south and west, leaving numerous machines above all trucks. Fortunately for Guderian, these heavy losses at Mikhailov were at the time still an isolated incident. It confirmed for Guderian what he says was his own decision. Proceeding by just a few hours, the orders of Army Group Centre Commander Fedor von Bock to withdraw his far-flung divisions immediately. The retreat was conducted under increasing Russian pressure from 7 to 9 December. The German units by now had been worn down to a shadow of what they'd been when they invaded Russia. The Russian attacks were primitive. They had few supporting tanks and not much artillery. Their infantry were often made to attack. It's clearly not a proper description for this. Without any weapons at all. Combat casualties for the Germans were heavy, but for the Russians, their casualties were overwhelmingly heavy. The German aptitude for offensive defence was exacting a heavy toll on the poorly coordinated Soviet attacks, but the German troops were utterly exhausted. In some cases, this was extreme, as is found in the 9 December report from General of Infantry Walter Fischer von Weichstahl's 53rd Army Corps, which said, The soldiers are no longer able to offer up resistance, as they don't fight anymore. While the fatigue and anguish of these men is entirely understandable, what was perhaps more remarkable was the many stories of human endurance which ultimately kept Guderian's feeble Panzer Army alive. Meanwhile, Guderian himself was becoming so stressed that his continued ability to lead was soon going to be called into doubt. Thanks for joining me, Paul, in The Danger Zone. If you have any questions about anything in this program, maybe you could catch up with me for my guided tour at the Australian Armour and Artillery Museum on Saturday morning starting at 10.30am. Probably the world's best guided tour of an armour and artillery museum, borrowing the Danish Kulzberg slogan for their beer. If you missed this program, you can catch up with it as a podcast on Spotify, Apple, and many other sites. Search for The Danger Zone, bracket, DZ, close bracket. And if you like this program, you'll definitely love my other program, CYKIAE, also available on the same podcast sites.